Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology and OCAP sport review podcast. Today, for our special 100th episode, we thought it'd be timely and valuable for the team to come together and reflect on what we thought was important when we were ranking residencies and fellowship programs, and then talk about what we actually found was important to us now that um, all of us are either almost done or, or completely done with our, with our training. We hope that this will be valuable as a personal guide to applicants who are currently deciding their own rank list, whether that be for residency or or fellowship. So today on the podcast, we have three folks, and I think we can all introduce ourselves and remind folks where we trained as context for what we're going to be talking about. Andrew, do you want to start? Uh, sure. Yeah, it's nice to have circled the wagons and gotten all three of us back on. I think it's the first time, right? Yeah, thanks for support. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, this might devolve into chaos, dear listeners, so bear with us. All right, so I'm Andrew Powell. I We all trained at the same residency. We all trained at Yale, and that's how we all got to meet each other. After Yale, I went to uh, Johns Hopkins for a glaucoma fellowship, and then right after that, found my the great job that I've got now is at the University of Iowa as an assistant professor here. I'm Ben. Like Andrew said, did residency at Yale. I'm now at the University of Michigan for a vitreo retinal surgery fellowship. And then I uh, announcement signed at the KCI Institute in Portland, Oregon to be faculty there in adult and pediatric retina. Woohoo! Yeah. I'm so excited about this. You have no idea. <laughs> why, why is that Amanda? Why are you specifically excited about it? So I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not biased at all. I'm Amanda Redfern. I, of course, trained at Yale for residency, and then I did my fellowship in neuro-ophthalmology at the Moran Eye Center at University of Utah. And now I have just started my dream job at the KCI Institute. I am an assistant professor in neuro-ophthalmology and comprehensive. Which means you two get to hang out a lot next year and forever. <laughs> It means, it means Andrew will be forced to deal with West Coast time for a while now. Uh, yeah. Frequently. <laughs> so before we go into kind of the meat and potatoes, uh, we wanted to go through a few caveats. One, obviously we, all three of us went to the same residency. That's where this podcast was formed and, and everything. But hopefully listeners still find it valuable, even if they're not looking at, you know, at, at the Northeast. Because we did all then go to different fellowships afterwards and, you know, all of us worked closely with residents in those fellowship programs and we all have, you know, different experiences from that perspective. And I think in on reflection, we'll be able to compare and contrast, you know, things to a common source to hopefully give some insights in that, valuable insights in that way. It's also uh, the point of this episode is not actually to tell you our recommendations for how to be a strong applicant or how to interview well. And that's because we wanted to take a step even uh, before you get to that step necessarily. That stuff is, you know, you know where you want to go, you know what you want, and then people just have to give you advice about how to try to get it as best you can. But we're actually going to be talking about before you know what you want, how do you decide what you want? And that's really the meat and potatoes of what we're doing. Another caveat is none of us are on our current residency or fellowship selection committees. So we do not represent any of our uh, our current institutions, or for that matter, our former institutions. We will not be disclosing any specific information about how they operate. These are just our impressions from the side of the applicant or when we were applicants. 
And finally, we do not plan on discussing any specific programs. Our hope is to not mention any programs now that we're done talking about what our training history was. But remember that us mentioning where we trained is essentially a disclosure. But like, keep in mind, listeners, you should, when you're listening to any talk, that we may be biased towards things that happen at our own programs, but we will, we are conscious of that. We'll try to be as unbiased as possible about talking about what we found, what we you know, either wish we had or what we were glad we had in, in, in residency or fellowships. Okay, so as an outline for the listener, we're going to talk about a few kind of major broad topics. So the first, we're going to do an intro on the rankings. If you're not totally familiar with how the ranking algorithm works, then we're going to talk about what traditionally is thought of as constituting a strong academic program, type of quality of life, the importance of facilities at your residency or fellowship, resident or fellow slash attending clinic, surgical training, location, job placement, and then some final thoughts about general philosophy and how we advise that you rank programs. So let's first talk about rankings. I mean, I think you probably understand this the best. Can you tell us how does like the, the residency ranking algorithm work? So... It's called a marriage algorithm and it favors the applicant, which was a change from decades ago when it actually favored the institutions. And so there was a complete different strategy to how you did your uh, rankings. But here, the bottom line is that you want to rank them in order of what you, where you want to be. When you rank, let's say I were to rank programs in order of program A, B, C, D, and E, and those were my top picks. If I rank program A and I so happen to be in, let's say their top five slots because they are a five residency or five resident program, then I would automatically rank there. But if I was ranked number seven, so outside of their top five or where they had room, then the computer would go down to program B on my list and look at where I ranked for them. Again, if I match in the, or if I am in their top, whatever, five, four, however many slots they have, I would then match there. So that's kind of like the first pass at it, but then you can understand how there might be some shuffling along the way because not every program is going to get their top five, right? So then if they don't get their top five, then all of a sudden they can go down to slot six or slot seven, which if slot seven was me and that they were my number one pick, then I would match with them and that reshuffles everything. Right. And then uh, I believe all fellowship programs use the same algorithm. Unless there's a program that matches somebody outside of the match, but that's a little weird and different. Like Whoa, that's my, is that's my experience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Neuro-ophthalmology uh, usually is more of a kind of an apprentice style match. Is that how you describe it, Amanda? Uh, my former mentor would call it a handshake. A handshake, yeah, yeah. So. I was skeptically <laughs> optimistic for a while because I knew I had a spot, but it's not in writing until the rest of your class like that year matches and then they start onboarding you with the rest of the people who are in a regular match. And so I was like, yay, I have a fellowship. I have no proof of this. Yeah. Wait, is that how all neuro-ophthalmology is? Fellowships? Yeah. Yeah. There's no match for neuro. Okay. So thanks for explaining that. 
Amanda, can, now I, I think this is where like knowing the algorithm is the most important. So let's talk about like a common example, a common thing that happens when you're trying to make your rank list. So Amanda, let's pretend I love program A, but they're like a top whatever institution. I don't think I have a great chance of actually matching there. And then program B is my second favorite. And I think I have a much better chance of matching there. Should I then rank B higher to give myself a better chance at matching overall? You would be a fool. Ouch. You okay. should always do it in order of where you want to be um, because you have nothing to lose. If you rank the top program first and you match there, then you know you match there. If you rank your second program above that, you'll never know if you could have made it in and you'll end up going to that other program, which may be great and may be exactly what you need. But from the perspective of going where you want to go most, it just doesn't make sense. Because the match algorithm favors the applicants, unlike the programs, I believe. So is there the programs? Yeah. Is there a motivation? Like, you know, we, um, I remember like in applying, there were, um, there's a lot of talk about writing like love letters to our programs, like, oh, you're my number one pick, or you're like one of my top three choices, or, or whatnot. Is there, so then there's like no point to doing that, right? There is some point to doing that in the sense that residency programs are run by people who have feelings and want to be appreciated for who they are. (laughs) So to the extent that some programs may want to see that there is a better match there, it might help where they rank you. Everybody wants to feel like they're entering this uh, relationship in with a mutual, you know, favoritism and respect. Right. And I I think, you know, that the flip side of that too, is that that match algorithm does not favor the program. So if they were like, if we flip that around where I'm like the program director and I have applicant A and applicant B and I like applicant A more, but I think there's, they're not going to come to like the East coast or wherever I am, then there may be incentive to rank applicant B higher because I think I have a better chance of getting them rather than missing both of them. What I've heard from people on selection committees when I ask them this question uh, is exactly that. Like we want to train people who are really enthusiastic to be here with us. Otherwise, nobody wants to just force a great candidate to begrudgingly work for another three or four years with them. Right. On your note of the um, the geographic aspect of it, that can be helpful because that is a huge question that a lot of program directors face if they're on the opposite side of the country from an applicant. Would that applicant really want to move to the other side of the country? I don't know about for you guys, but that was a that was a real big sticking point when I whenever I interviewed anywhere. And didn't it happen to both you and me? Yeah. <laughs> But that is the thing, like you should, if you're willing to move to the other side of the country, you should be clear about that. Yeah. In the past, I think it was more of a segregated by location sort of process. Like I had old chairs tell me like, oh yeah, this is one match. But in actuality, it's more like five regional matches all happening at once. That's how it all practically ends up being. But then... That didn't seem to ring true for me because I went from the West Coast to the East Coast and same for Amanda. I think it's probably becoming less of a region locked 
kind of process. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's probably like, you know, individual variation, right? Like if one program director was burned because they thought that someone from the opposite coast or from the Midwest or whatever would come to them and then they, they got burned because like, you know, two years in a row, they didn't get those people. Then they may be biased thinking like, oh, there's no way someone from, you know, the Midwest is going to come to Florida, you know, to whatever program that I'm at. So in which case, coming back to the original question, does it matter? Should you tell the people you're interviewing with or applying to that you actually do want to go there? Like, why would you? Because you're applying, you're interviewing. Isn't that enough already? No, it really probably would make them feel a little better if you told them you're actually seriously interested in that. Yeah, especially in the era, era of uh, like Zoom, you know, uh, where yeah. there's like no cost to to going to an interview, you know, if you, because we all know that everyone's top priority is to match. Okay, one comment I wanted to make about rankings that I, I know that was important to me when I was applying. And I just, now that I've learned more about the process and I've seen more of it, I just have a perspective on it, is that there exists these online published rankings of programs. So, you know, Doximity, I think, is one of the bigger ones that is, is frequently looked at and the, the ophthalmology times has their own like versions of top 10 lists and, and such of, and different factors. Um, you know, I think US News and World Report has one that's specifically about eye centers. So not necessarily the residency, tra- residency training program, but how good the eye center is, which may be a proxy for, you know, how good the, the training is then. I, I think it's important to know where that comes from. I think there is some value to those lists if you don't have like mentors that can help you guide you through the relative strength or quality of programs. But know that almost all of these lists come from current ophthalmologists, um, in some case the definition be a board certified ophthalmologist, that they get like a email or survey that says, hey, send in your opinion or send in what you think the best five programs are in the country or whatnot. And then they make the ranking based on, on things like that. Or they'll reach out to previous residents or fellows in that program and then say, hey, what what did you think of your program? Give it like out of five stars, how good did you think it was? So I hope that you can see immediately that there are some issues to that. It's like I don't think any survey goes out in the sense, okay, here's 108 residency programs or 110 residency programs that are out there, rank them one through one through 110. You know, is this people saying, like, oh yeah, I've heard that X program is awesome. Everyone knows that one's awesome, and then put that in their top five. So I think there is some there is value to these to, to the, looking at these rankings somewhat, but my caveats are one, they could be out of date. So you know any current ophthalmologist in general can submit their rankings to these. So if you've been out of the game for thirty years, then you can still put in a ranking. So that those opinions may be thirty years old. Um, there could be hearsay. They could be like you have no experience with that program, but your friend knows someone who was there and they loved it or they hated it. So there, there, there could be hearsay. There's no way to screen out for that. So as a result, I think that these rankings may be somewhat accurate, somewhat more accurate for well-known programs. You know, your so-called top twenty programs or whatnot. But then as the program becomes less well-known because it's a reputation-based system then the rankings may become more random, so to speak. Less, you know, If they have a less well-known reputation, it's harder for the group that is asked to make the rankings to rank them. Thanks. If I can add one more thing to that, Ben. Uh, some of these ranking systems use this floating average as well, sort yeah. of like a hemoglobin A1C. Huh. It's more effective yeah. of your last three months of sugar <laughs> control. Yeah. <laughs> Which means a program could have tanked for whatever reason, some cataclysmic event sundered the program in two even or whatever, 
and they'd still end up having potentially a great review or ranking on these things for a few years, even after the you know cataclysm hits them. So be careful of that as well. Yeah, it's harder to get. Um, and then I think nor- towards the end, we, we can talk about ways to try to get a more accurate, hopefully, representation. And I mean, spoilers, my opinion is you need to talk to people, either faculty who are there or people like residents who are recently there to get a more up-to-date idea on what the training is actually like. Now we can get into what factors, again, that we thought mattered and then how what factors that ended up mattering. So first, let's talk about academics, like the so-called like academics. When people talk about a program, like oh, they have like not as good surgical numbers, but they have great academics. Like, what does that actually mean? So here's here's what I had written out as what I think most people think of what makes a program quote academically strong. So that includes the research, the didactics, the overall structure of the program, which we can talk about, and then lastly, the faculty, like what faculty are there and what they're doing and how, quote, academically strong they are. Maybe, Amanda, I'll ask you this. Like, Do you think that all of these fa- these four factors are legitimate indicators for how, quote, academically strong our program was? Or do you think some are like overblown? Like, How do you feel about this? Yes, and I think that there's, we all look for a little different. Um, we look for different things, basically. For me, research is not my passion like it is for you. (laughs) Um, So I didn't consider that as strongly, but did I pay attention to what resources they had for research? So knowing that I would want to do something, but I didn't know where to get started. I wanted to know that there was going to be some sort of mentorship, that there were going to be um, projects available that I could jump on because I am not the idea person. I'm not the one who typically comes up with the idea or the topic to study. But when there's something interesting, I can totally get it on board with it. I can get into it. I just, I mean, you know, uh, I went to you for uh, an idea of how to get me to academy my second year. So <laughs> I, I want to point out that then after that, she went to academy and then my project got rejected to academy. <laughs> <laughs> I felt so bad. I tried to give it back to you. No, 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 no. You all completely deserved it. You did all the work on that project. But, anyways, um, but yeah, Andrew, um, what do you, oh, yeah, no, go ahead. Sorry. I, didn't mean I was going to say, I cared a little bit more about structure and didactics and clinical volume to some extent. Uh, and then where people, where past residents had matched. Yeah, that's something that I, I don't think I included is um, the quality, the so called quality of the fellowship match. Andrew, what do you think about what makes a program academically strong? Like, what does that mean to you? It means two different things. And it means you can think of it, I think, in like the academic reputation of a place as far as what they make the rest of the world think about them, right? Like, everybody thinks, oh, Harvard's mm. so great. Um, yeah, or Oxford or whatever. That's a place's reputation. But then the other flip side, more salient to you as the applicant is, is this academic place going to make good on the meaning of the word academics for you? Are they actually going to teach you and help you and become a great doctor? So just one of the facets you mentioned, research, an institution basically thrives on the strength of its research programs. 
That's how they get grant funding. That's how they get way up in the U.S. News Report rankings. But to be honest, all that stuff doesn't really affect you, the ophthalmology resident or a fellow, that directly. So it could be a great research institution, but the training program is doesn't is sort of just there as an afterthought almost. However, the availability of having those things around you gives you as an applicant or a resident a lot more opportunity and possibility. So even if you're someone who's not that interested in research, you could still do some just to kind of stay in the game a little bit. And that helps your networking incredibly as well. So in the same way that somebody applying for ophthalmology who does have an ophthalmology program at their home institution has a natural advantage, unfortunately, over those who do not have an ophthalmology program at their home institution. It's because of that same sort of thing. Opportunities exist, networking exists for you, and it doesn't for someone without those things. So even if research is not like the main thing you love, if you're, if the place has it, it does indirectly translate to advantages for you. I hadn't thought about it that way. For me, actually, you know, going into residency, I didn't think research was, it's not something that I particularly enjoyed doing. You know, it was kind of a thing to me, it was like, oh, you got to get like X number of pubs so that you can, get, you know, go to a good residency or fellowship or whatnot. But I think throughout my training, because of opportunities that just popped up, it, it really made me more interested in research to begin with and kind of like helped shape my career that if those opportunities didn't exist, then maybe I would have like never really sunk my teeth into wanting to do research. So I think having the opportunity there is very valuable. Even like, you know, even if you were like me and just saw research is just another thing on your checklist. The long con worked on you. Yeah, I got, I totally got And me, rules. actually. Yeah, you, you, gosh. Okay, so... No, I appreciate both of your thoughts on the value of academics. Now, I wonder whether we should call this on the flip side is quality of life. So maybe, Amanda, I'll come back to you. You know, one, you had a kid during residency and raised one during <laughs> yes. fellowship. Is that a legal interview question? Is that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is not a legal interview question. They should not be asking you that. Um, but unfortunately, not everybody... Uh, has training on what is okay and not okay to ask. Like me, I, I didn't this ask you during this interview. Right if, <laughs> if <I could> ask. <laughs> but yeah, what what does quality of life mean to you as a as a mother? It <laughs> means everything, actually. <laughs> I will say it's funny that I went into it. I actually didn't like programs that had a lot of residents with families because I was like young and ready to party. And I'm like, oh, none of these people are going to party with me. And well, you lo and us, behold, right? I turned into one of them. <laughs> so I think... As soon as you got to Yale, everybody started having babies. I know, too. everybody started having babies. <laughs> I would say that strong academics and quality of life are not necessarily mutually exclusive. And what you want is a balance of both. For me, the things I looked for in quality of life... Actually, the big thing was how happy were the residents. I remember going to a social with some residents, and it's harder to see over Zoom, but when you see residents talk, people catch up with one another, one another. And one program in particular, they just were miserable. And one of them's like, yeah, I get by by buying new Nike shoes every time I have a really bad day. 
and I have now a lot of Nike shoes. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is not this is not for me. And I I mean it was a great program by the standard academics, but I was like, that's not for me. And I part of that is knowing who you are and what you're looking for and what you can handle. Cause no matter where you go, it's a hard residency. I know it doesn't seem that way. You're like, how bad could it be? It is hard. I don't care where you go. So yeah. there's a balance. You don't want it to be harder than it needs to be, but you want it to be hard enough that you are competent when you come out the other side. The big quality of life measures I used, actually the biggest was um, how the call system worked and how frequently you're on call. Because there's a huge difference between Q4 and Q5 to me. I say that as someone who went through a Q5 program that was at times Q4 for various reasons. And you feel the wear. So I was attentive to that. And the size of the program is what plays into that. But the size of the program also plays into the people you have around you to share this experience with, because it's often very lonely. And it's someone as um, extroverted as I am. That was very hard when you take call, you're alone. And so having people that you can be friends with lifelong, like we are now and share that with was important to me. (laughs) I love it. Uh, Andrew, what do you, what do you have any thoughts on, I guess in retrospect, how would you, well, one, how important was quality of life to you as a trainee and how would you try to assess the level of quality of life for the programs you interviewed at? I, uh, I'd give this a couple different facets. One is culture, just cause like Amanda was referring to, if everybody loves being there, it's so much easier to be there. And if everybody hates it, then you're probably going to hate it too. Um, and culture is a nebulous thing to iron down. And some of it comes from more, more specific things you can measure, like call volume, call frequency, clinical volume, even just caseload volume. A quick tangent, you know, what do you guys, what would you say the average number of globe ruptures after our globes each resident at our residency had to do? Let's say it was X, right? And then I went to go talk to somebody else at a, another busy residency and I realized they had like four times the number and the year hadn't even finished yet for them. And I was like, man, they must be like going in after hours at night at 11 p.m. like every week or something. So they, you can extract a program's culture from measurements like that, but those guys actually seemed kind of upbeat, up for the challenge, or really proud of their numbers too. So, you know, that's not everything. Then there's also other things like how well does the program kind of value your time too? When we were talking off air about didactic schedules a little bit. Um, and just because a place might make you stay an hour after clinic to teach you, every day doesn't mean that it's bad or they disrespect your time. In fact, they might actually respect how much they have to teach you and how much they want to teach you. But there is like a, a you draw the line in the sand somewhere at some point, right? Because some places have you come in on Saturdays on of various frequencies as well. And you want to see where you're comfortable drawing that line. Um, other things like sometimes a program has you drive to a lot of different satellite clinics. And at each clinic, you might have a very different experience, which is all good for your education. But if it means you're driving like 
three hours just in one single day sometimes, that might be wearing and not practical for you, really. Right. Or, like, on another hand, you know, if your call structure is such that you have to cover multiple hospitals at once and you frequently have to bounce from this hospital and go to that hospital and come back to that one and go here. Yeah. You know, that might mean your call is more straining than, like, you know, the like seven patients you see a night on average, you know, if, you know, you have to see two in this hospital and two in that hospital. So that's just like, I think another kind of hidden thing that you, you want to, you want to think about when you're trying to assess how straining call is, as we're all talking about. Yeah. Ben, by the way, I don't want you to lose your chance to you know, highlight your opinions on these things too, because you're very kindly, as you usually do, playing host for us. Are there other things that you wanted to highlight too about quality of life or academics? Yeah, so I, I also think well, so for quality of life, I do think in retrospect it was much more important uh, than I had thought about. Like, like to me, like looking when I was like you know five years ago when I was applying, or six years ago when I was applying, the the most important thing to me I thought was academic, like well, how much academic prestige a place had or whatever, or, you know, whatever that meant, which I really didn't know what that actually meant then. I just know what people, other people said. But in retrospect, I do think quality of life should have been a much more important consideration. And that's not to say that where I, anywhere I've trained has had bad quality of life, but I just see the value of it much more now that I'm, like, um, you know, closer to the other side. So I think a thing I wish I'd asked at all the programs I interviewed at, or if I were at your stage, dear listener, and you were still um, uh, interviewing, is ask, you know, roughly how many patients you have to see in a night when you're on call, or how many phone calls you have to answer when you're on call. Um, don't forget that at a lot of programs, call includes answering, you know, phone calls in from patients of the the Mothership Eye Center, which definitely takes a lot, can take a lot of time managing phone calls, figuring out what to do for those patients. So getting a rough feel of those numbers is helpful. Modulating that by how many sites they have to cover at once, you know, you know, those are the kind of details I I wanted as opposed to thinking like, oh, this is like low, medium, high volume. Like that doesn't, you know, that means something different to every different person. The other thing too is like number of sites covered, how much you have to drive. So I think, you know, in our training, we kind of had a unique thing where at some point during our training, we had to um, start driving to our surgical center. Um which I remember at the time, I thought it was like, oh, end of the world. I thought that, you know, we would mainly be kind of like at this mothership for, for surgical cases. And then in retrospect, I I didn't think it was like bad at all. Like, like I thought like that little bit of a commute during the day sometimes is going to be a bigger deal. And I could see as an applicant knowing that, that I would have like kind of overblown that feature. Like in, in my view, it's kind of like when you're picking like your freshman dorm in undergrad. I remember when I was like a high schooler that the your freshman dorm was gonna be like the most important thing. Like if you didn't get like this awesome like social dorm, then you would you know have a horrible like rest of your college experience. And I think that like in obviously in retrospect that that that, that factor didn't matter at all. It's just like the people that you're with in your dorm or whatever, right? And I honestly think that like it's similar to like surgical sites, you know, <laughs> or like like how far you have to drive. Like as long as it's not something in, in my view, as long as it wasn't something like you know that was ex- extensive, then like having to like move around to to do or see different things is like really not a big deal at all in my view. Anyone disagree? Amanda, what do you think about commuting? <laughs> yeah, kind of, sure. I mean, well, I always thought everybody was but... so silly at our program because everybody thought I lived so far away and I was twenty minutes away. 
And you know what? I had the best attendance record of anyone in that program <laughs> for <laughs> showing up on time. <laughs> well, that, yeah. Um, <laughs> so I think we're, we're kind of, uh, this is kind of a good transition to talk about facilities. I know that on the tours for all of our interviews, they um, unfortunately can't see them. You're just getting pictures. But I think that this is kind of like one of those ooh-ah moments or um, or like, oh no, like this, you know, this is like obviously kind of an out-of-date facility or whatnot. Here, maybe we should first talk about how, you know, I think we've all, again, we've all trained at different programs. Like how important did you think the quality of your facilities were as a trainee? Uh, let's start with Andrew for this. I kind of think that uh, how pretty and up-to-date things are is mostly a reflection of how much grant money the place is pulling in. It doesn't really have much to do with your training and your educational experience. To the extent that all of this sort of like cosmetic appearance of how nice your facilities are actually goes through to how much do you have as far as state-of-the-art equipment at your disposal to learn with, I would say that matters a lot more for fellowship than it does for residency. Because residency-wise, you're trying to learn the basics, and any self-respecting accredited ophthalmology program should at least have those basics for you, whether it's the fanciest new Centurion or maybe an older Infinity cataract, phaco emulsification device or something like that. Honestly, I wouldn't say matters too much, uh, but that's my opinion. But I do think this turns on its head entirely when you are a fellowship applicant, because then you are looking for subspecialty expertise and your mileage may vary a ton based on what your institution has available to them. I totally agree with that. It doesn't make sense to um, rank programs on that in your residency search, but in fellowship, oh yeah. You want exposure. You only have a year to get that exposure. You want to try things. I mean, you know, there's lots of things about, you know, what what's a place got too. There are places, the one thing that I maybe I'd say runs counter to what I just said is if the place has like a gorgeous, wonderful wet lab or something, or like a simulation space, because that's just pretty cool and I'm a nerd in general. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm curious as to, you know, how often those places are actually utilized by trainees and whether that actually translates to a better educational experience. I think those things are still uh, up for debate, but to have it is nice. Yeah, I mean, I think specifically to that, I think it's more important if a program has protected or structured time to use the pretty equipment than to have the pretty equipment. Because, like, you know, it's it's awesome to have, like, a beautiful, you know, X-Lab space, but if you can only use it when you're, like, off on Sundays or something, then, you know, I, for me, I would rather, I, I would rather have, like, you know, X-protected time or, like, you know, at three o'clock on these days when I'm in this rotation, then I have like faculty that can help me use it or whatnot. So that's a good point. But that's just that, that's just my opinion. I think you know. I think it, I could see it being the other way around too, where you'd rather you know just go in on your own time and you know use the equipment when you when you want to is, is fine too. There's one more thing I do want to mention about the hottest new toy thing. Like sometimes that just tone turns out to be a total dud anyway. Like I remember, maybe you guys, this was your experience too. I interviewed a year before you guys interviewed, but the question every applicant was just used to asking at the end of every interview was, 
do you guys have a femtosecond? Rate? I was going to say the same thing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Everyone has a femto. What good does a femtosecond laser like? Does it matter anymore that much? Hardly no. Not at all. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's something that like if it's still coming up now, I don't really know what the culture is now with, with femtosecond, but it's something that I would highly deprioritize in my opinion. You know, you can always do like a training course later for things like femtosecond. I don't think that should be a priority. Yeah. Right. The companies say, yeah. that make those machines have a very big interest in making sure that you get trained whenever it is in your career. So it doesn't matter if you have that in residency. You should learn how to do it the traditional way and get really good at that first. Yeah, like like for me, you know, we're talking about fellowship. Like I think like I would prioritize programs that have the hottest things in terms of mechanics or technique as opposed to like the hottest things in terms of technology. Like I hear what you guys are saying. Like you definitely want to, you know, be able to use like the, the hottest tech or whatever. Like I'll just give like a retina specific example. You know, um, subretinal gene therapy is kind of one of the newer things that's out there. So I think if you can find a program that does that, I know there's not many. Th- then then I would prioritize that. But you know, interoperative OCT is another thing that's like a technology thing that is, you know, that that is kind of like right now. I, I don't want to say it's exactly like femtosecond, but it is you know like a newer technology that is kind of being being bandied about. I personally, again, still being a fellow, find that a little bit less valuable. Like I would not prioritize in retrospect intrap OCT being at a place where we have intrap OCT because it's a technology that you can learn in my opinion later if you there's some big utility to to learning it. But you know learning how to do gene like you know subretinal injections is like a technique that um, you really want to get your like if you're going to try to do it, you want to get your hands dirty like in fellowship. So it's a you know, and I think it's exactly analogous to to cataract surgery. Like you know, you want to be able to do like a manual capsulorexis. Like that's something that is hard to learn later. I don't really think you need to like. It's not something that I would prioritize learning is femtosecond because you know, uh, I'm not saying it's like trivial to do, but it's it's not mechanically difficult to do. It's more like decision making with femtosecond. And like Amanda said, even if you don't get it in your basic training. There will be people who would be very eager to train you afterwards on how to use that stuff. Yeah, I think like the hottest MIGs is another good example, right? Yeah, I wasn't going to get into it too, too far. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, exactly like what you're saying. If you are used to the techniques of working in the angle, then it doesn't really matter what device or you know thing you're sticking into it or using to manipulate it. You just know how those angle techniques. I mean, honestly, hottest toys and everything like if there's a glaucoma fellowship that doesn't teach trabeculectomy a surgery that's been around since 1967 uh i would think everybody should learn it as a glaucoma person but that's got nothing to do with the hottest new technology just all the the variety of techniques you're exposed to exactly And it makes sense for minimally invasive glaucoma surgery. Um, if you don't, you know, right, your sorry. listener doesn't know. No, yeah, I should have said it. Yeah, and I think it's you know the analogous thing for retina fellowships is the quote hottest kind of thing for vitrectomies is like twenty seven gauge vitrectomy. But if your fellowship isn't trying to do scleral buckles, you know, another like old surgery that affects retinal attachments, then I would hundred every single time pick the program that teaches you buckles well than the ones that has twenty seven gauge vitrectomy. Because you know, twenty-seven gauge vitrectomy is just like ah, like whatever a quarter millimeter smaller than twenty-five gauge. Like it's not a huge difference <laughs> using twenty-seven gauge vitrectomy, even though it's quote the hottest toy. <laughs> um, 
Okay. Um, so maybe we, now we can talk about. I think this is like a huge thing. But to, to me, this is actually the biggest factor. Actually, um, not to not to spoil it uh, about picking between different training programs as a whole, which is basically trainee clinic. So it's either resident clinic or fellow clinic versus attending clinic. And I'll say that most programs will have some balance between the two, though I, there are programs out there that don't have a true resident clinic or a true, and there's many that don't have a true fellow clinic, actually. That's probably even more common compared to attending clinic. So, Good question, Ben. Yeah. Do you consider the VA experience a resident clinic? Yes. So maybe I should define what a resident clinic is first. So to me, and if you folks disagree, I'd, I'd love to hear opinions. But to me, a resident clinic is where the resident or you know fellow—I mean the same thing. So I talk about fellow clinic too, where the resident or trainee is the primary person responsible for a patient. So, like when you're scheduling follow-up, you're scheduling with like the residents, not with like a specific attending. If that makes sense. So, the key, the, the most common places to get resident clinic is a VA or a county hospital. So like, you know, any medicine who's talked to me before, I always tell them, you know, I would highly consider ranking places with VA or county hospital exposure over places you don't, unless they have some other mechanism to get you a resident clinic, which exists, which do definitely exist. Yeah, there are definitely resident continuity clinics where residents will get to have like a half day or day a week, depending on how their program has it set up, where they see their own patients and they may staff with a rotating attending, but um, they have that opportunity to have continuity of care. Right. So there are many different ways to do it. And you could have both. You could have the VA experience and this kind, this other type of resident clinic. Yeah. And so, you know, I think, you know, I've gotten questions about like, well, what's, what does it matter? You know, if I go to an attending clinic and I see a patient, I staff with the attending. And then if I'm in a resident clinic, I see a patient, I staff with the attending. So like, what's the, you know, what, what does it matter resident versus attending clinic? Cause again, I made the bold statement. This is like the most important thing about training compared to everything else that we've talked about. So I, I think the biggest difference is the sense of responsibility for that patient. You know, you're seeing the patient, you make a decision about the patient and you just do, you basically do a safety check with an attending. And I think if you don't have that responsibility, like there's just a, I guess it's a little hard to describe, but when you're in an attending clinic and you make some call, then the, whatever the, the, the end of the line is the attending and the attending lives with that decision. But in resident clinic, you know, the attending does help you make decisions, but then you have to live with that decision that's made. You know, if the patient does poorly on not going to surgery for their hyphema or something, then that's on you. And I think that that's incredibly important to actually learn, as opposed to what may. I don't want to. So th- this is this is extreme, but you know, in some cases, you can almost see attending clinic as like shadowing plus, which you know it really shouldn't be, but it. it there are definitely attending clinics where you can run into that, where you're. It's almost like you know you do see a patient, and then you you try to think about it. But you know when the responsibility isn't on you, the learning I will say is like much lower quality, in my opinion. I don't know what you guys think. Andrew, do you want to, do you have opinions or thoughts? Uh, I feel like I've been going first a little. Okay, bit. Amanda, Amanda, no, no, no screw you, Andrew. <laughs> Amanda, I will say <laughs> on the note of attending clinic. Um, on the note of attending clinic. Something that I always, uh, I didn't know to pay attention to was, do those attending clinics rely on trainees to run? I always resented those clinics where 
I felt like it was just labor and not learning, or at least the primary emphasis was on labor and not getting to learn. Because you you need to be in a clinic where there is some teaching, some oversight. So when you go in and do an exam and these are all of your findings and then you move on to the next room, but you don't get to see what happened and all you can do is go back and read the note to find out what happened. That's not as helpful. And it's, especially in certain clinics, one thing I really valued about my cornea rotation was seeing something, not knowing what the heck it was and getting to be there with the attending who, as she looked at it, who would tell me this is what that is. Because if you don't have that experience, then you spend the rest of your residency saying, there's that gray thing there, instead of <laughs> saying what it actually is, what, what like a Salzman nodule. You know, it, it matters that you have that experience where you're in an attending clinic, it can be helpful if they are there teaching you and not just using you to get through a high volume of patients. And one way you can tell that is if the resident or fellow is discouraged from taking vacation during that rotation because they need someone on, or if they're pulling other residents or fellows onto that attendings, uh, into that attendings clinic to cover someone who's out for sickness or vacation. That's not a good sign to me. And I fundamentally believe that all attending clinics should be able to run without a trainee and that the role of having a trainee in an attending clinic is to teach. I think that's really a valuable, valuable insight for sure. I'll give to Ben's point about the sense of responsibility that you have if it's your resident clinic. I know that's sort of a nebulous thing to um, explicate. And without trying to call anybody out, I'll just sort of mention a conversation I had recently with one of my trainees where I was asking them some questions I thought in a nice way about a patient in one of my clinics that they'd seen as well. And I remember the trainee's response was initially saying like, well, I didn't even really know the patient. I just saw them once. And I remember thinking at the time, like, well, that reaction never would have been possible if this was your resident clinic. Like, you can't really foist off responsibility like that when it's your clinic and you're the one calling all the shots and you're the one where the buck stops. But this is really just a yet another way of looking at another question. Does the residency prioritize or give you autonomy or does it guide you through training? And that the where the balance should fall really is up to you and your preferences. Some people just, they think, you know, guided learning is just handholding and they want to get out there and do everything on their own. They want to be independent as soon as possible. If that was 100% the bent you had, you'd become a very self-reliant doc very quickly, but you might be doing things kind of wrong the entire time and you wouldn't know it. Uh, on the other hand, you know, guided learning, you learn things correctly, but then day one when you're attending on your own, on your very first job, you could be absolutely terrified. And it might take you a long time to get through that terror. And, you know, I think the color of your decisions just changes to when you're like the one that's responsible for, for that patient, you know, like, like we can, you know, I think it's easy to think like, oh, you know, with like medical decision making, you can just look it up in a book or look at what the latest study showed about this or that. But it never, you know, like 
randomized control trials or whatever the BCS, BCSE says to do with a patient who has, you know, like cystoid macular edema or something, there's always going to be little subtleties to managing something even as simple as that based on individual patient characteristics or the patient's needs or flying out for a month. There's nothing in BCSE to, that tells you how to manage it when they like, you know, you can't do the recommended like, you know, two week, one month follow up or whatever it is. So like having to face those decisions on your own um, and work on them with patients, I think is, is incredibly valuable and it comes up every single day in you know, a recently busy clinic. I just got an idea for a cool study yeah. that will illustrate this point exactly. And maybe I don't want to give this away, but <laughs> could it be like, if you were to study this, could it be that younger attendings ask their patients for more frequent follow-up? Yes. Because they're not. It's probably it, true, I right? I bet it is true. I bet it is true. But like, am I making my clinic like come back and see me in two months when like the great emeritus professor who just recently retired would have done like six months and everything would have been still just fine? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. One of my neuro attendings told me that he would see that person back in six months. But when I start, I'll see them back in three months because I'll be nervous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, So I just also, I want to kind of caveat what I was saying before about, you know, resident or fellow clinic. So I do think it's very important, but, you know, I do, like Andrew was saying, I do think there's an incredible amount of value to attending clinic as well. Like, you know, when I do kind of fellow clinic now, seeing patients with attendings becomes that much more valuable because I saw a patient, I figured out how to manage them with attending oversight and such. But then when I see similar patients later with attendings, it just, like, I get so much more value out of that attending clinic once I've, like, seen how I struggled with things I thought were simple in fellow clinic, if that makes sense. Dude, I had it so crazy. There was one point where one of my attendings in fellowship went on leave for very, I'm not going to say why, but Mm -hmm. um, it was an innocuous reason. But then they asked the fellows to cover her, that person's clinic. And so not only is it, okay, now it's my clinic, but I am literally babysitting a real attendings clinic for them. I better not screw up any of their patients. Right, right. Yeah, no, and there's just like, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, it's a little nerve wracking, but I think it's just so... You know, it's so valuable, um, especially because the whole point of all this is not to make you the best resident. The whole point of all this is to make you a great attending, right? So the more practice you get at playing at attending, the I think the better that you'll be. It may matter more for neuro, but learning how attendings address things with patients was very, very helpful. And one thing I loved about attending clinic, like how do you address non-physiologic vision loss with your patient? How do you break it to them? Actually, that's a really good point, Amanda, because I'm not sure there's any point for a, well, neuro-ophthalmology just benefits so much more from attending clinic. Mm-hmm. Like the gap between attending clinic and resident clinic and neuro-op, if there is even such a thing, is so much wider than any other subspecialty. Because we have so little data on a lot of <laughs> Yeah, we're like, like <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so, it, and I think that that really gets to the core of I think the value of a, a attending clinic because you know again like when I was I remember when I was a med student I would think like oh you know what's I would kind of think like what's the big deal about all this because I'm I'm, I'm like I'm a very rational person I'm just going to use evidence based medicine and that's all I'll need to do the you know but the, obviously the where that falls short is where there's no evidence 
which is very, 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 very frequent. Even in right now, where there's a ton of money to do randomized control trials, like every which way thing. Like, I, you know, you should look at how many protocols the DRCR network is running. Like right now, there's like you guys tons ran of money. out of letters, right? What's up? You guys ran out of letters. Yeah, yeah, we're on like we're like on AH or something like that. I don't know. It's it's <laughs> it's, it's it's crazy. Um, um, even with like you know a lot of money from like industry and from you know a lot of academic you know important stuff, there's very basic things that we still don't know. So that's where you kind of have to use like you know faculty experience, see how they handle things, their philosophy, how they interpret the data is just you know incredibly valuable there. So I'm curious if you both have thoughts on this. I think a great training program has at least thirty percent resident or fellow clinic. Uh, I don't know what you guys think. If you would put a number to how much of your time is spent on that. I don't know how to uh, quantify that, honestly. Yeah. I know, you know I want some, both, but right. I don't know how I would how break much, it down. How little is too little? I, I think it's that's more the question because there there are rare programs that are almost all, like almost 100% resident fellow clinic. And I think those are all very unique, so I won't really comment on those. But I would say... I'm not very familiar with programs that are much more than 50% time in resident or fellow clinic. If there is, then something may actually be going wrong with that program and you should be careful. Yeah, that you're essentially a cheap yeah. attending. That's a possibility, you know, in some places. I would not like, go to a fellowship program that did not have a fellow clinic because I, I would be so lost if I wasn't forced to make those decisions before I actually entered as an attending, it's hard enough as is. And then to be making those decisions on your own for the first time is extra hard. To answer your question, Ben, I kind of think that it depends on everybody. It's an individual thing where they put that like 30, 40, 50, 60% quantification, but I would not do a hundred percent or 90% because I'd be worried that that could be a red flag for maybe the program is falling apart. Uh, okay, let's maybe talk about surgical training a bit. I think a big bugaboo is um, case numbers, like number of cataracts. Um, uh, what do you guys think about surgical volume? Uh, I want to bring up geography again, because it's, it is an unfortunate fact of life that different regions of the country have very different average cataract numbers for their trainees. Um, where we were in the Northeast, relatively fewer, to be honest. The places that are just going gangbusters with cataract surgery for residents are like the Midwest and the South, as far as I'm understanding it. And part of that, it's such a thorny thing to detangle as to why. Um, some of it has to do with local culture and what patients are willing to tolerate, what attendings are willing to tolerate. A lot of it also has to do with what are the eye institutes actually focusing on? And some of them, you know, the big uh, major research players, they're going to spend their time doing research, not necessarily just cataract surgery. But that means some of the other places that don't have necessarily the same academic prestige can dedicate all their time to just churning out 300 cataracts per resident or so. That's sort of the bird's eye view of numbers, at least by region. So when you're thinking about that stuff, just know where it is actually makes a big difference. Yeah. 
And there's exceptions, right, to each, um, you know, to, to the region thing, of course, there's exceptions. But uh, but I think I, I agree with my rough understanding is that's generally true. But I guess one thing, like I think a lot of a lot of med students when they're looking or, or residents applying to fellowship look at surgical numbers as the way essentially to rank the quality of surgical training. Can that one number encapsulate the quality of surgical training? I think there should just be a minimum and anything above that doesn't mean anything more. And to give people some perspective, majority for a lot of programs, majority of your cataracts come in your last year. And for me, my last year included a maternity leave and then COVID. I got about close to 150 cases and I am now doing cataract surgery and I feel fine. So I would put that out there as that was enough. And I consider myself a pretty average person. So if you're like, well, that place only has 150 and this place has 200, to me, it doesn't make that much of a difference. But that is one person's experience and one person's opinion. And everybody will feel differently about that. Um, But I know that when I was looking at numbers, I did not know what to make of cataract numbers when everybody would boast about their numbers. I'd be like, "Uh uh-huh. Yeah. So bigger's better. I'll agree with you, Amanda, that bigger is not always better with cataract numbers as long as you get a certain minimum. But there are some places that just are so cool. They teach their residents advanced cataract maneuvers. And they could be placed, they're generally at places where people have higher volumes, but they don't always have to be. And that is not reflected in the number at all. You sort of really have to know like who's a great cataract surgeon and who's also a great teacher of cataract surgery um and you only learn that stuff by asking around yeah i i so i i think like my opinion on this is that um uh, the the number it's definitely not the whole thing i think actually what's more important is the structure of the training i think there's a lot of programs that i may or may have direct familiar with or not that the structure of the training is you just kind of get thrown into it and you get paired up and you just kind of try to do your whole first cataract and you know, they're kind of expected to like learn on your own as you go. Um, you know, I think a program that has a dedicated structure to the training, like didactics or surgical conferences where you review videos, etc., just it just it's a huge multiplier effect in each cataract that you do, in my opinion, in terms of the, the learning that you get from each cataract. So I think the structure of how the training progresses is actually more important than the number if the number meets a certain minimum. Is anyone brave enough to say a minimum? Let's <laughs> say an actual oh, number. For us? Or cataracts, let's say. I mean, why just put it out there earlier that we had the lower numbers regionally, right? Right. And we still feel fine. I know you're not a cataract surgeon these days, Ben, but I'm sure you still feel pretty good about it. Yeah, I do them every once in a while in fellowship. And um, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I do feel... A very comfortable. You drop the lens for fun so you can go retrieve it. I do. Yeah. If, if I struggled with numbers, then I might little push them oh back a little God. bit. No, I don't. I would never do that. <laughs> but I mean, the, the ACGME minimum is 86. Is that correct? Correct. That's too and few. Everybody thinks that's too few. I, I know that uh, my program directors didn't feel comfortable with my numbers until they boosted me up to like. 120s, 130s or so. Say that again, I, I ended up getting more than that. I got more in fellowship and I still, you know, I feel fine. Um, but I'd say probably around that 120, 130. Yeah. As a minimum. 
Yeah, I think I agree roughly with that number. But uh, but you know, it's an individual thing. Honestly, I think right. if you feel like you're a more mechanically talented person, you might honestly require less, you know, surgeries. And it, it, like, I think like this is something else, like in terms of ranking for numbers, if you feel like you kind of struggle with picking up new mechanical skills, you know, like if like, I don't, I don't know what it'd be like in day-to-day life. Like if some sports, like it took you kind of a <laughs> while, you know, it's hard, it's hard to find analogs. You know, I think it's a real problem in um, like picking surgical candidates or um, like thinking about whether you want to do surgery on your own. But, you know, I mean, knitting may be like a fair thing. I don't know what it'd be, but if you feel like you are mechanically less talented, you may actually want to go to a program that has, that gets you more reps. You know, that's actually something that might change, like a concrete way you can change it based on who you are. If you feel like, you know, hey, you know, I think cognitively I'm great, but mechanically I do struggle a little more than I would like to, then you may actually want to rank places on numbers more. Um, But if you feel like that's less true about you, then you may want to, Right, view numbers less. Like I think numbers is all about reps. You know, I don't think it actually necessarily makes you a better surgeon. Uh, well, I mean, it makes you a better surgeon, but you know, I think a good structure and surgical curriculum can can multiply that effect significantly. But if you're just someone who needs, you know, you just had to make more and more wounds to get really good at making wounds, then you need more reps, and there's no way around that. That's my view. Okay, so I, I hope that that is valuable for people to think about how to interpret numbers and surgical training and such. Uh, before we get into our kind of our final philosophy on um, on how to rank programs, uh, can we let's talk about geography and how much that plays into it? We've mentioned it throughout. Amanda, do you have any views on, or do you have any perspective on how geography mattered to you when you were ranking? So. In residency, it didn't matter at all. I just wanted to get into ophthalmology residency. But for for my um, fellowship, it mattered a lot because my life had changed. I, I was married. I had a kid. Um, so it mattered a lot that we were at a place that my significant other wanted to be. Um, and for those of you who don't know, our big hobby is climbing. He's a much better climber than I am. I'll put that out there. Um, so being somewhere where we could enjoy the outdoors and enjoy that uh, hobby and then um, having family support. And you take a huge pay cut going into fellowship. At least most fellowships, you'll take a huge pay cut. Yeah. And how do you afford that training when you have a family? So I immediately had to... I, X out any large city on my list because we just flat out couldn't afford it. Um, yeah. So that was I mean, a big factor, like childcare and family support. And if you're in a big city, how much is it going to cost for rent? And then you have to pay for childcare on top of that. And then you took a twenty, thirty thousand dollar pay cut. And Amanda, do you mind if I mention that it was the only program you applied to? Is that yeah? <laughs> Only the only one that uh, really uh, um, met, met my um, criteria for location, and also was a great training program by reputation, and then meeting the people and talking to them about how the program was was Utah for me. So thank you, Utah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I would caution our listeners, though, to not think you can really have quite that amount of agency or luxury in making your decision. Unless you're neuro-ophthalmology. Yeah, to be honest. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, there's, it's just neuro-ophthalmology is such, it's the smallest field, I think, right? 
Can I say that? I Within think oncology might be smaller. Oh, oncology might be. Yeah, that's true. Oh, yeah. Oncology might be. Pizza's a little bit. Pathology is probably even smaller. Yeah. 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 But everybody needs a neuro-ophthalmologist. That's true. One thing that I think um, a concrete question that will come up for a lot of applicants is let's say you're in a situation like Amanda where like only X city or X location, that's like, you know, for spouse or family or whatnot, you, it's huge if you could go there. I think a question is, should you tell the program director of that place that that's why you're ranking them number one or should you mention that? Um, so I don't know if anyone has, th- I have thoughts on this. But I don't know if anyone else has thoughts on it. What are your thoughts? Yeah. My thoughts are, if you don't, like let's pretend it's a cold thing, right? Like you don't really know them. And let's say you're not going through the neuro-ophthalmology process where it's, I, I feel like it was a lot more personal for you, Amanda. You know, you had a lot more time, you met with everyone, the, the time scale was a little bit less. But if you're going through more of like a traditional match for residency or like, you know, retina glaucoma, cornea fellowship, et cetera. My thoughts are to not mention it. If you don't know the fellowship or residency director and you don't have time to kind of expound on things, I think, and this is not reflective of any director I've ever worked with, but I think that there is a problem where some directors may think, I want people who will train with me because they think we're the best program and because they're the best applicant. I don't want to bend because their ex-partner happens to be an engineer that needs to work in the city. And, and, you know, like, I think it's a little, like, not empathetic and maybe it's a little playing to ego. I think that's definitely true, but there is like, I, I will say, and this, I don't think this is how I will make decision-making, but I think there is a little bit to it because, you know, when you are signing on a fellow or even a resident, you are almost marrying that person for the next like three to X number of years, you know, depending how big your program is, et cetera. So, you know, it's a big decision-making point for the programs too, so, you know, I just see like in some cases there like ego might play a, a role where like, oh, they're only ranking us because, you know, because we're in the X area or whatever and their partner needs to be there. Um, so it could, I, th- I could see it getting you into trouble if you don't know the director and like know that they're not that kind of person. I don't, but I'm, again, I'm curious what you guys' thoughts are. I, I've seen it work in completely the opposite fashion right. where it really helped a person to tell them about how region locked or situation locked they were. And like, you are my number one for very good reasons outside of, you know, even medicine. And they really wanted to know that. And it was really helpful. And it did help that person guarantee more that they were going to make it. And I think if you wanted to try to play this game, without knowing anything else, you could kind of guess like, okay, is a program in a location where they probably are needing and hoping and wanting people to come to them more because they're fighting their location maybe as sort of a general cons category thing? Or are they one of these like top programs that doesn't really care who wants to come to them because they know they're going to get the best people anyway all the time? Um, you might be able to game that decision a little bit around that heuristic. But why would you just ask everybody you know, try to get as much information as you can about these kinds of places and how they might look upon your telling them something like that? 
And I will say, I think my, what I was saying is a little bit more true for fellowship where it's smaller, you know, it's more of that kind of marriage situation than it might be for residency. Um, and I also say that if you happen to have like a medical partner, I think there may be, some, I think there's actually more advantage. Like, let's say your medical partner matched to X university already and you know that you, so that way, that means you know you want to go there, then it doesn't actually hurt to talk to the division or, or program director of your partner's division and see if they can talk to, you know, kind of make a deal with your, your current one. Like everyone I think is invested in keeping the residents as a whole happy. For the medical students too, just in case, it is illegal for interviewers to ask you about your personal life to that degree, but it's not a bad thing for you to bring it up yourself. You totally can. Yeah. So yeah, I think, oh, and then I guess I, this isn't, um, this is like a last comment um, that I, I've heard people ask. So sort of on the other side of a ge the geography question, let's say that, you know, for residency, you don't really care that much where you are for, you know, as a young adult in training, but you know, you end up closer to home or family, or there's some ultimate location that you want to be in. Then something that I've heard recommended, um, and I don't know how true it is for any of the people on this call, but is that you could consider ranking a program that's near your ultimate target location more based purely on the idea that the people, like let's pretend it's uh, you need to be in California. There may be some advantage to matching somewhere in California just because your faculty or attendings who will support you may know more people in California better than they know people in like the Northeast. You know, that's not always true, you know, especially if you're looking at something in academics. Academics is very international in terms of, you know, who are friends and where they are. But for, but, uh, but, you know, especially for private practice, I think things are a bit more regional in general. But I don't know if you guys have any thoughts or experience with that, otherwise we can move on. Okay, I apologize in advance. I have the child with me now. I can hear it, but Hi, that's Ollie. okay. Hi, Ollie. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's mommy's bot, huh? Or do, yes. or do we want? Oh my gosh. Be careful about non-compete clauses. If you are doing a fellowship in a city that you really want to practice in and then they don't have space to hire you on because some programs do have those, like especially in ocular plastics, they don't want to train you and then have you turn around and compete with them. Now I've heard that those non-competes, you can figure out a way around them with a lot of legal assistance, but I have no idea how that works really. I just, I've heard it's not an ironclad kind of thing. You can fight it, but it's just a lot of effort and not always successful. They also have to want to pursue it. Just because there's a non-compete clause doesn't mean that your employer is going to pursue it. It's money and it's time, but it's also personal, so it really depends. And I don't think any residency has non-compete. So I don't think, I, in fact, it may be illegal with ACGME, I'm not sure. That's something I'd worry about less for residency, but definitely for fellowship. You know, I've known multiple people where this has come up um, and has, and, and it should make um, uh, an impact on your decision making if you know what your ultimate target location would be. Otherwise, I do agree, actually, Ben, that having a network does help. Um but your academic mentors usually have pretty far-flung networks in general. Yeah, I mean, it can really depend on your program, you know. If you're at a place with very academic people, I think it's definitely true. But if you're not, then, you know, it probably is less true. So, But there's also, you know, in general, there's always a need for comprehensive ophthalmology pretty much everywhere you go, usually. Right, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, the job market's pretty good. Like, there's certain, I think, you know, like, I think pediatric ophthalmology too, the job market in general is pretty darn good. You know, it, it depends, right? I, I don't know what, but the thing is, it can also vary year to year. So who knows, you know, you know, with COVID and everything. What's the phrase that we heard? I can't remember who told me or us, but like, if there's a McDonald's in town, then there's enough patients to support your population. <laughs> your That's an incredible. <laughs> what? Of that's How awesome. many McDonald's per practice? If there's already a practice dude, <laughs> next that's to that your, one McDonald's, then. that's your study, dude. We look at how many McDonald's are required to support each different subspecialty. Like for comprehensive, it's like one. For neuro ophthalmology, it might be like a hundred McDonald's. Like I don't know what you think, Amanda. <laughs> it might be a lot of McDonald's. Dude, that'd be an that. amazing study. What did do? Okay, whatever. we measure in Starbucks in the uh, Pacific Northwest, but then kind of not because <laughs> we're actually. We're moving away from being proud of Starbucks. Apparently, we have to be more boutique uh, coffee places. I, I did not know that before I signed in, at uh, the Pacific Northwest. No, that that's incredible. So let's end. If anyone has any kind of general philosophy or wisdom to pass on to people as they're making the rank list, because I, I, it was so hard. Like I, I, you know, I feel with everyone. Like some of the like some decisions. I hope with your rank list will be will be simple. You know, you'll know like this program is not for me, or this program is definitely my number one for X, Y, and Z reason. But I know that there's a lot that is very difficult with making your rank list. So for for me, I think you know, I, and I only use this for fellowship. I didn't use it for residency because I didn't know about it. But you know, I think for yourself, make a needs and wants list. Like I've heard of people doing it the kind of the other way almost where they take programs, they kind of quantify all of their different characteristics. Like, you know, like oh, surgical numbers, if you have over this number, you get like three points or you have under, you have like two points or whatever. And then, you know, for research, you get this many points and then try to make it that way. I mean, I think it's a rational way to do it, but I feel like it's a little de-individualized because, you know, not everyone's looking for the same things. So how I kind of structured things was make a needs and a wants list like, you know, for fellowship, I needed to be at a program that had X number of surgical volume because, again, I knew it was much easier for me at that point. I knew how good of a surgeon I was and I knew I needed this many like reps, or at least I had that impression. You know, in retrospect, you can talk about it. And then, like, on a once list, you know, for me, it was like I really want to be at a place that has pediatric retina training. That was just a want for me, but it wasn't like a need. And then trying to match up programs to, okay, does it fill up all the needs that you have? And then like you get bonus points if you fill these at once. So that's that's how I looked at it for fellowship. I don't know if Andy, I mean, if you had other, you know, other systems that you used. I think you can kind of you can use like a gut-based system too. Yeah. Just like how do I feel about these things? And then I put my each program for fellowship on index cards, one for each index card, and then I literally shuffled them around until I felt good about the order. But you could do both. Mm -hmm. Like and that's actually how I did it too. Like assign each of them this overall rank according to some summation of points that you're describing, Ben, put use that as your preliminary sort of ordered list. And then just look at it and see how your gut tells you and shuffle things around for vague reasons if you have to, because vague reasons are usually also good reasons. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, this sort of thing. Yeah. I, I do think in this kind of, because you know, oftentimes I personally rally against using your gut 
because I feel like, oh, it's like subjective. It's not. But, you know, I think this scenario, this situation is a low information situation. Like, you know, no matter how much you find out from former trainees or faculty or whoever, you're still walking into a low information situation. You don't know how you're going to react to being in somewhere in the fellow clinic. Like maybe you believe me and say like, oh, I need to be somewhere at the fellow clinic or whatever. And then you actually go there and you're like, well, this really doesn't add that much value to me. That's just like, you know, Ben was crazy. He, it's just a, a him thing. You know, and that, that's with like every factor that we're talking about. So I think in low information situations, using your gut is um, very reasonable. Like I don't think it's actually irrational to use use your gut in that, in that, in this kind of a situation at all. And sorry, before I give up the mic, one more thing, this is specifically talking about how to rank programs that you've already chosen, that you've already applied to, already interviewed at. But I know there's a step that we're not talking about, which is how do you know which of these to even try to apply to even before you get to that stage? And my experience would tell me I, the only way, real way to know your worth, your relative value to know where you might stack up against every other applicant, how competitive are you really is the, one of the big questions you have to try to ask, ask yourself when you're trying to figure out where should I apply to. Ask your mentors truly what they think and don't ask just one because they, you may have mentors who love you who think you're the best thing since sliced bread, who then give you sort of an overinflated estimation of how competitive you sh- you are, really. And that's not to say go find someone who loves you and find someone who hates you. Uh, the second probably won't be that helpful. But do just sort of try to get a perspective, triangulate this with as many mentor opinions of you and your competitiveness as possible. And then factor in things that you need, like Ben saying, like, I have to be here because of my spouse or something or other issues like that. And then go from there and just know that whatever you do, you're working with the same amount of low information as everybody else is, like Ben said. Yeah. Ultimately, you know, not to bring back my silly example before, but I think it's uh, there's a little bit of that college freshman dorm thing here too. Like there no, may be great, great metaphor. Is like, you know, I think all of us on this uh, that are on this call have been like very happy with their their training, and I kind of wonder if like all of us, let's say we all went down two spots in a rank list or something. Or, or or whatever it, whatever it is, or or went up two ranks on places in a rank list. I wonder how much happier we would have been, or how much less happy we would have been. I hope that at the end, you we find that where we ultimate and ultimately ended up on a rank list didn't matter as much as we thought it would. But maybe for some of us it does. But I hope in terms of training, like the academics and everything. I hope that it matters less than you thought it would after like, you know, a couple years into your career. I'll agree with that. Turns out of the 120, 130 or so residency programs there are, the vast majority of them are solid places. Yeah. There's really just, you have to go pretty far out to find one on the fringes that's not in not in good health. Yeah, it's a good thing about the ACGME, you know. Like if you talk to folks who are like, I, I hope I don't know if we have international listeners here. I'm not definitely not. I don't know enough about other um, countries' training programs to comment, but I do know that there are, there are countries where, um, you know, 
countries that are the high resource countries that uh, have much less standardized training programs. And as a result, there's ones where maybe you shouldn't feel comfortable practicing after you're done, that you need that you need more training when you're done. And you know, the ACGME, like it definitely will cause everyone who listens to this headaches because you don't have to do all these surveys and all these quality control things. But and you know, maybe there's things that could be improved with how ACGME works. But one thing I think that does work is in general it assures that you'll have quality training and can be a trustworthy physician by the time you're done and an ACGME approved program in general. We should have uh, mentioned too, sorry, that this is a podcast episode specifically for our Americans. For Americans in the, yeah, going to the U.S. match. Yeah, maybe I'll edit that we, in. Uh, yeah. We know that a significant portion of our audience is international. And actually, we appreciate that so many of you listen to us because perhaps uh, you're using us to solidify something that you're international program might be lacking a little bit. I think I saw some Reddit comments about that recently. Um, but sorry, we all of what we're talking about probably doesn't really apply for an international applicant looking to get a position within an American residency or fellowship. That's a, that's a very particular Tall challenge. I'm sorry. Yeah, they're not qualified to talk about it. Yeah, but um, if you go to straight from the cutter's mouth, they had an episode where they interviewed um, a, a, a bunch of app, well, a couple applicants who are internationals who um, who matched successfully to USMD program, and I will put a link in the description below if you are interested in that. For sure, and it's not impossible. And I've seen some great things for great people to happen, but. It's just a lot harder, and we'll leave it to Jay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, his podcast is uh, absolutely phenomenal. Um, I guess the last thing that I want to touch on is, I know this is going to be a concern for, again, anyone who is putting in a rank list is what happens if you don't match. You know, it, obviously it depends on your application and how many interviews you got, and, you know, we can't give you any personal specific advice, but if your heart is really set on ophthalmology and there aren't, such strong red flags in your application that there's a chance for you if you don't match the first time, there's often hope. You know, we encourage you to talk to your department, talk to your advisors. You know, we know, we, I, I think uh, most of us on this call know multiple people. Like, I know personally know multiple people who had a disappointing first year when they tried to apply to ophthalmology, but who are now currently through, you know, persistence are now very happy ophthalmology residents or fellows. Obviously, there's no guarantees. I mean, you can look at the numbers when if a match doesn't happen, but you know it, it is possible to to still make it through. And um, you know, I, I wish everyone who ends up in that situation the best uh, in terms of trying to match. Does anyone else have any last minute thoughts or things before we finish? <laughs> Maybe Ali can lead us out. <laughs> oh. Here, there's a microphone. Do you want to talk in the box? Can you say good luck? Yeah. Oh, luck. thank you, Ollie. <laughs> All right. Everybody out there, you've been blessed by uh, by the child of Amanda. <laughs> say thank you. Thank you. Oh. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone out there, we wish you the best of luck and, uh, you know, hope you have a otherwise have a lovely holiday season. And this is our 100th episode. It is crazy looking back and you know I think 
you know, the impetus behind this 100th episode was us all looking back at our training. You know, we started this during residency and now I'm the last one that still has to finish training completely. But, you know, we want to give a big thank you to everyone who supported us over the past 100 episodes. And we hope as a team we can give you another 100 more. Bye. 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 <laughs> We're not going to be able to beat that outro. You're basically the de facto host all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Do you hear Josh uh, playing with Ollie in the background? Not at all. No. Okay, good. Because I just hear, where is Ollie? Where is Ollie? I kind of wish we did. Yeah, that would be amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Sorry, continue. Um, (laughs) Okay.